0: You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway.
1: Well, that was the week that was. It was the week in which Fireman Sam, the much-loved children's cartoon character, was banished from the force by fire chiefs who thought that he was too white and too male. Nothing wrong with that, I say, as a white male myself... In a country where 88% of the people are white and where half of them are males, but it does raise serious concerns for the fate of Noddy, the oldest and most loved of children's characters. Unless Noddy redefines himself as they rather than him or her. In the way that Sam Smith did This week. Now, let me say to Joe Biden, I play Sam Smith on my record player all the time. I think his voice came from God, is simply divine. I have zero interest in his sexuality, and I'm surprised that he thought that we did. Adam Gary and I were on a long drive this week, coming back from the mother of all talk shows roadshow, and We came up with a few cover hits that he might cover for his next album. Thank you for the days, the old kinks number. Those were the days, my friend. You get where I'm coming from, here, or rather headed to. This kind of absurd political correctness is alienating on this side of the Atlantic what has long been underway in the United States of America. Where to be in with the in crowd, you've got to know your hymns from your hers and your him and hers from the theys. The firefighter, and by the way, some of my oldest and closest friends are women firefighters, and I'd rather they came to rescue me than Fireman Sam. But firefighters are firefighters. It's not off-putting to women firefighters that fireman Sam has something in his pants that defines him as a male. It's no more off-putting to young male explorers to enjoy the wonders of Dora the Explorer. If you're listening from far away and don't know any of these characters, Perhaps you'll get it if I make this point. Last night, I was at a boxing event in Southampton, an overwhelmingly pro-leave area. The audience, as is Southampton, was overwhelmingly white. The audience, as is the normal audience for boxing, was overwhelmingly male. And that's just the way things are by forcing identity politics, political correctness, the policing of language, the policing of perception of one person of another is doomed to alienate vast tracts of the population. And insofar as the left are identified as the champions of this kind of nonsense, the beneficiaries will be as they have been in the United States, the political right. Just think about that. It was the week when the war-russ, I am the war-russ, John Bolton was finally dismissed. The little Eggman who fomented war everywhere. War, famine, pestilence and disease were his middle names. Donald Trump finally decided to give him the boot. After a series of foreign policy disasters with China, with Venezuela, with North Korea, with Syria, and perhaps above all with Iran, Donald Trump's opinion poll ratings are on the slump. Donald, slump it is this week. Another four points of his public opinion poll ratings. Bolton's been given the boot, but he's not the last of the Mohicans in that administration. Pompeo was at it again today when the Yemenis struck back from years of relentless bombardment of their country, its hospitals, its schools, its wedding parties, even the funeral parties burying the people that were killed in the last airstrike. The Yemenis struck back at Saudi Arabia's principal oil terminals and set them on fire, causing a halving of Saudi Arabia's oil production. As Oscar Wilde said on the death scene of Little Nell, You'd have to have a heart of stone not to laugh. So, the Saudis know the Yemenis can fight back. That's what any rational, sane person would say before going on to say, let's try and bring this war to an end, but not Pompeo. He demanded that the United States find Iran guilty of the drone attacks on the Saudi oil refineries. And Lindsey Graham, who's never seen a war that he didn't like, though not enough to go and fight in it himself, has called for American airstrikes on Iranian oil refineries. Well, Mr. Trump, President Trump, if you do that, then you're an even bigger fool than most people already imagine you to be. And I spoke of Joe Biden earlier. Did you see the debates? Did you see his false teeth shooting out of his mouth and across the debating chamber floor? Did you see him in the previous debate when blood started to come from his eye? The balderdash between his ears remains intact as his long utterly incoherent, rambles, right-wing, reactionary rambles, continued to pour out of his mouth even after he lost his false teeth. I'm sorry, Joe, it's time to chuck it and your family really ought to lead you away before the men and women and they in white coats come onto the stage and lead you away themselves. Burnley, on the other hand, had another storming week and has broken into a massive lead in the opinion polls in New Hampshire, which has the benefit of being the state that will hold the first primary early next year in the Democratic Party process to pick their candidate against Donald Trump. I reiterate my oft-repeated Take on this issue. If the Democrats pick Bernie Sanders, they can and will beat Donald J. Trump. If they pick anybody else, and particularly if they pick Joe Biden, they will be annihilated by Donald Trump. Speaking of boxing, the referee will have to intervene and stop the fight the coaches in the corner will have to throw in the towel. Can you imagine Trump pulverising that old man, Joe Biden, blood streaming from his eye, his dentures fleeing from his mouth, talking utter nonsense? I shudder at the very thought of it. And it was the week when Brexit went berserk here in Britain. The Liberal Democrats in the last 24 hours have declared themselves to be the opposite of Liberal and definitely the opposite of Democrats. They have passed a policy at their annual conference not to have a second referendum to force the people to keep on voting until they vote the right way. No, that was their policy last week. This week... They're not even going to get a second referendum just in case they fail to change their mind. The Liberal Democrats now are going to be the party to revoke Article 50 and forget all about this Brexit business altogether. Well, if you believe that, I've got a bridge here in London I can sell you. I've spent the last few days in the West Midlands in Southampton, in a vast auditorium with hundreds and hundreds of working-class boxing fans. If you think Brexit's going away, you weren't in the West Midlands with me and you weren't in Southampton with me last night. But speaking of the West Midlands, the deputy leader of the Labour Party, deputy leader, somebody called Tom Watson, He made a speech this week which directly contradicted his own party, of which he is, I remind you, thrice the deputy leader, and absolutely contradicted, indeed, kicked in the teeth. And Corbyn's teeth are real, I hasten to remind you. Not that I've pulled on them or anything, but I know him well enough to know he doesn't have a set of Joe Bidens in his mouth. Tom Watson kicked him in the teeth by saying that Labour should not support a general election for another six months. And in that six months, a second referendum should be held between Theresa May's Brexit deal, already dead and buried, which Labour under Watson would disinter and put back mouldering from its grave on the table and have a new referendum between Theresa May's dead Brexit deal and remaining, with him as the deputy leader, Thornberry as the foreign secretary, Macdonald as the chancellor of the Exchequer, Abbott as the home secretary, Starmer as the Brexit secretary, are all pledged to campaign to remain. It's an odd way of living up to the manifesto promise which Labour successfully ran with in just 2017, scoring 40% in the polls. They're now down in the mid-20s at best. But in 2017, they promised to respect the result of the 2016 referendum, to respect the decision of the majority in that referendum, but merely to renegotiate the terms. That's what Corbyn wants to do, but all of his confederates now, all of them, including his closest colleagues, Macdonald and Abbott, who wouldn't get a chance of a sniff of a front bench under any leader except Corbyn, have joined the gang, the gang that seeks to break Brexit. And in so doing, and maybe for some of them that's the plan, break any possibility of Labour forming a government at an early general election. Because, you see, for many of them, not Macdonald and Abbott, they would rather have Boris Johnson as Prime Minister than have their own leader, Jeremy Corbyn, as one. And, of course, the ghouls are out again today. I see in the Daily Mail that the sources in the British security services have warned Donald Trump that Jeremy Corbyn PM might leak secrets to the Russians. Why? Because he's a lefty, but Russia is not. Lefty, there's nothing left-wing about Russia. Russia ceased to be a communist Country almost 40 years ago. What is wrong with these people? Why would Corbyn leak secrets in the first place and why would he leak them to Russia? This kind of mania is going to grow and grow and of course it is assisted ably and utterly destructively by the fifth column inside the Labour Party as a whole, concentrated in the Parliament, in the Parliamentary Labour Party, now concentrated in his own shadow cabinet, and even now with Macdonald and Abbott, jumping ships in his own kitchen cabinet, his own inner circle. Which leads me to Boris, the last story and this one confirm my long-held view that Britain is ruled not by James Bonds but by Austin Powers, by Johnny English, by blithering idiots. Boris Johnson not only looks like a cartoon character but has begun openly to liken himself to one. Today, he was going to break the shackles like the Hulk and come out swinging and fighting for Britain post-Brexit. But he forgot several things. First of all, that Mark Ruffalo, who plays the Hulk, hates him and was quick to point it out. Secondly, the Hulk is green and not blue. Thirdly, the Hulk is American and not British. And fourthly, and perhaps most importantly, the Hulk has a middle name, Incredible. The Incredible Hulk being played by the Incredible Boris Johnson, who is running his campaign. They advised him to prorogue the parliament, to stop the parliament trussing him up like a turkey and making a fool of him, tying his hands in his negotiations with the European Commission and its leaders. So he prorogued the parliament and they trussed him up like a turkey anyway. There was ample time in the non prorogued parliament to wreck. Boris Johnson's Brexit planning. So what was the point of the prorogation? What is the point of these walkabouts in northern towns where it seems people are queuing up to tell them to get out of their town? And I saw today, actually tears rolled down my face with laughter. Boris shambled up to a fortune teller, a gypsy fortune teller, on a seafront somewhere, and asked her what her predictions for the future were, without anyone having checked what it was she might say as the cameras were rolling, rolling, rolling. Well, her husband said, Actually, our forecast is for a Labour victory at the general election. And just as Boris rocked back on his heels, he doubled down. He asked the woman, the fortune teller herself, what's your prediction? And she said, you've got a right cheek. You've stolen my pension. You've robbed this town of all prosperity. You've devastated us all with your austerity. And now you're asking for my fortune-telling free of charge without even offering a golden coin to pay for it. And then she confirmed her husband's crystal ball, that her official prediction, was for a Labour victory. Well, there might be and there might not be. It all depends on whether Boris Johnson is as stupid as he looks and is acting. If Boris Johnson makes a pact with Farage and the Brexit party, he will win the general election and win it very handsomely but he has already rejected such a pact in the most insulting terms and so the Brexit Party will be forced to oppose him in all but a handful of constituencies, in which case it becomes a four-party race in England, a five-party race in Wales and a five-party race. In Scotland. In England all four of the parties will be in the 20% and it will therefore be the most unpredictable election in living memory. Actually since Harold Wilson went to the polls in February of 1974 and won his third of four terms as a Labour Prime Minister. And finally, it was the week when Julian Assange served out what was in any case a grotesquely unfair and long sentence for skipping bail.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters. May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
1: decided that he must remain in custody, perhaps for years, in Belmarsh Prison, a maximum security jail. Until the American case, an explicitly political set of charges of revealing American official secrets, Julian must continue to waste, waste away in Belmarsh prison. Well, not if I can help it. I am absolutely committed to devoting as much of my time as I conceivably can to get Julian Assange out of jail. Now, John Shipton is a fine man, an Australian. I actually had the honor of meeting and spending time with him in Australia a few years ago when I visited Sydney on a speaking, a small speaking tour. I never imagined when I met him, some five years ago now, that I'd still be having to talk to him, this time over the phone, alas, about the vile incarceration of his son Julian Assange and I hope he's joined me now on the line. John, are you there? Yes, yes, hi, George. Hi, thank you very much indeed for uh, joining us. I said in my introduction that the decks are now cleared. Nobody has any excuse, if excuse there was, to support the incarceration of your son Julian. There are no charges in Sweden, the investigation Into him there was long ago dropped. He's not in prison for having skipped bail He's in prison for political charges. So as uh, uh, Ambassador Craig Murray put it today Britain now holds the world's number one Political prisoner am I right?
4: Yes uh, uh, Julian has done nothing wrong not uh, the uh, British judiciary is uh, pursued him. Uh, Judge Philip, the first one, uh, his his uh, judgment severely criticised by the uh, Cambridge Law Review. Uh, Judge Arbuthnot, not in her hysterical denunciation saying he ought to get a bit of sun and step onto the veranda occasionally. Judge Phillips, if, uh, who uh, I suppose it had a law degree but became a a psychiatrist uh, and gave a psychological evaluation rather than a judgment. And today, yesterday, the other day, Judge Baritza, who uh, decided to hear a, a bail application case which wasn't before her, which she uh, promptly uh, uh, refused.
1: <laughs> who brought um, that bail application? It wasn't Julian's legal team. No, uh, she made, uh, Judge Baritza uh, made it herself. So she adjudicated on a bail application that nobody made. Yes, yes. She made it up herself and then consequently refused it. It's (laughs) utterly farcical. And she made the point that Julian's calvary of all those years inside that embassy, and now the requisite part of a 12-month sentence, has cost the British taxpayer... Taking into account the police costs and so on 16 million pounds and so he must stay in Belmarsh and run up a bill depending on how long the case lasts of many times 16 million pounds. Why?
4: Well, you know the I've I no idea I, I, Why the British? Judiciary is so uh, seething with resentment of Julian is, is a question I can't answer
1: I can't answer either and I'm British and I have followed and studied this case in such great detail It is an animus not even matched in the United States There's a huge debate going on in the United States in the media in the political class about the justice of Extraditing Julian Assange in the first place, but in Britain. There's no debate at all He's being held now only For the Iraq war logs and the Afghan war logs, which were a signal service to the world revealing war crimes without number and everyone who read those stories everyone who published those stories ought to be on the street with a Julian Assange banner, but they're not.
4: George, uh, those officials uh, who are engaged in administering the destruction of Iraq and Afghanistan occasionally pop up saying that uh, Julian endangered lives, which he didn't, which is just a plain lie, but their obscenity, of these officials involved in the murder of a million and a half people, saying that this innocent man has been now restricted in freedom, the further restrictions, now solitary confinement, endangered lives. It's just beyond obscenity, no description for it.
1: You're right. Have you been able to see Julian in the prison?
4: Yes, I I went uh, three months ago, um, and uh, he he wasn't—he, you know, not in good order, but fighting fit, Uh, but uh, you know, suffering from torture, as Nils Melzer outlined. He was the United Nations man, yeah. Yes, yeah, Uh, rapporteur on torture. Uh, Went and visited the prison with. Two experts who uh, know how to look at a victim who's been tortured, a person who's been tortured, and uh, he made a, a, a conclusion which was published, which the, the British government derided, and said, oh, well, we're ignoring that. Similarly, the same way they uh, ignored the Uyghur, uh, the United Nations uh, Committee on uh, Arbitrary Detention, they similarly, when that declared that Julian was arbitrarily detained, they said, oh, well, we're not taking any notice of that. Well,
1: uh, um, the Honourable uh, former Ambassador Craig Murray pointed out something on that today of really momentous importance and which should cause all British so-called journalists to hang their head in shame. This very committee of the UN set up to uh, highlight cases of unjust and arbitrary uh, incarceration detainment of people actually made a very forthright denunciation of the Iranian imprisonment of a British woman, a mother of small children uh, who is being unjustly held in Iran without proper trial, but the British media could not report that, why, uh-huh. because the yeah. same committee had said the same thing about your son Julian, and they could not report a UN demand that Nazanin be, re- be released from Iran because that same committee, so far as the British media w- was concerned, didn't exist couldn't be allowed to exist, because if it did, you'd draw attention to their forthright demand for the release of Julian Assange. How about that?
4: Oh, that's just extraordinary. In February, they did a further review and uh, launched another uh, severe criticism of the British government, which was uh, ignored. In fact, the the British government participated in... uh, the dragging of Julian from the embassy against all conventions.
1: Indeed they did. Now, uh, bad uh, as my own government is, what about your government? Julian is an Australian citizen. What has the Australian government, and public for that matter, done about one of their their sons being uh, uh, treated in this way?
4: For the most part, they sit on their hands uh, and uh, they are complicit in their silence. I must say, just that uh, uh, Julie Bishop raised the matter at parity with Jeremy Hunt and with Pompeo when she was uh, Foreign Minister. That's the only time that the matter's been raised.
1: And is it an issue in Australia, in the print, in the. Broadcasting no. in, in the political class at all?
4: No. In the political class, yes, but in, in the media, it's homogenous, uh, like the rest of the Western world. Mm-hmm. And they only put, only uh, take opportunity to report when uh, they have to. And uh, when you saw Julian, uh, did
1: he was he aware uh, of the campaign around the world uh, trying to free him? How isolated do you think he feels in there? Does he know what's happening in the world?
4: No, nothing. He's in the, his cell for 22 hours a day and uh, uh, goes to the Catholic mass, which is three times a week, so that he can mix with other prisoners. Otherwise, he would be in his cell for 23 hours a day. It's just and And no, no Internet? No internet, no. Li- I think he got one one library visit so far in the time he's been there.
1: One library and visit, no internet. One library yes. visit in what is effectively what seven, eight months of
4: jail. Yes, yes, and, and no opportunity whatsoever to prepare for Judge Barates's, uh condemnation that you'll abscond. Nothing. There's just nothing.
1: Well, uh, I mean, the, the, the way it's going, uh, the British government will be conducting both sides of the case. Uh, they'll, <laughs> they'll 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 be putting up the arguments for Julian in order that they themselves can knock them down.
4: Yes, uh, as as, as did. That's a story just I must say. They you know, just think up things in the night and bring them to court.
1: And will there be an actual bail application? Can there now yes. be? by Julian's defense team. Of course they'll make an application.
4: They don't want Julian. I mean, he's already been incarcerated for nine years. This case will probably go for three years. That would be 12 years. For God's sake, the cruelty. It's just awful. 12 years and they can't consider a bail application. The only bail application they consider is the, the ones they make themselves. Extraordinary.
1: And, uh, I mean, finally, I mean, how, in a way, it's, uh, I'm not sure even how to ask it, but how does it affect you? How does it affect his mother? How does it affect his children, his siblings? I mean, what's the... You've been all serving this sentence too, haven't you?
4: Well, his, his mother is, uh, I mean, you know, struggles with it and fights furiously. Um, his, his children can't see him. Uh, his brother gets to see him once a year. His sister hasn't seen him at, at all. Um, and I come, you know, as frequently uh, as possible. I come every Christmas, and I spend Christmas with him. Um, which is a joyful, but you know, a bit of a strain on both of us. Um, I've got,
1: I've got uh, a couple of questions here that uh, viewers and listeners are sending in, John. Yes. Uh, George, could you yes. ask John, please? This is from Dan. Could you ask John, please, about Satoshi Nakamoto? I don't know what that is, who that is, but you may.
4: It, it, that's the man who uh, put together Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin. It, uh, it, it, Yeah, he's the originator of Bitcoin. That's all I know about Satoshi. Okay. And Bird of Paradise.
1: Is he a friend of Julian?
4: Yes. Back in uh, 2010, they were corresponding.
1: Uh, Bird of Paradise. Hello to Julian Assange's father. Your son is a great man. Hope you're doing well, sir. Well, I think we all can say that uh, with our hands on our heart, John. We hope that you all survive this trial uh, in every sense, literal and figurative. And your son is a great man. I have the honour to be a friend of his and to know him well and know his greatness well. Uh, And I hope that that is at least a scant consolation to you, that people all over the world recognise your son as a great man
4: thank you thank you George I, I'm quite moved
1: by that. Uh, thank you may God bless you thank you very much indeed for coming on the mother of all talk shows hellos from South Africa Spain the United States of America Pakistan the Netherlands Sweden Austria Germany and Canada is that all Elena, no other countries, let's get, if you're listening anywhere else, let us know, will you please? Tweets from Alistair Robertson. At the present moment, you're just going to have to accept that Northern Ireland, along with the rest of the UK, voted to leave the EU under the auspice of the UK. You might not be happy with that, but what are you going to do? Well, there's not much, Alistair, that I can do, but the Irish people can. And as you very well know, the majority of people in the six counties of the occupied north of Ireland voted to remain in the EU. I think they're wrong so to have voted, uh, but they did vote that way. So um, rejoice, rejoice. A very simple solution therefore presents itself as the Republic of Ireland strongly supports and claims that it strongly benefits from uh, membership of the EU and the majority of people in the six counties of the north of Ireland voted to remain in the EU, well, the solution is obvious, Alastair. They could reunify their country and all of them could enjoy, if that's the word, membership of the European Union, as long as it lasts, which might not be as long as you think. Stuart Elson says, looks like it took Labour 45 minutes to come up with their latest Brexit plan. You need a, a cryptographer to uh, fully uh, actually interpret it. Roger Watson says, George, don't tell me that you think communism is good for people. Not sure what that question is even supposed to mean, Roger. I haven't mentioned communism at all in the course of this show. Fra Hughes says, as a fan of Corbyn, I cannot but feel he has delegitimized democracy by moving Labour into a second referendum stroke remain party. I wouldn't vote for Labour this side of Brexit. Well, I'm not sure it's him that's moved. I think it's him that's been moved. Uh, His uh, uh, allies, (laughs) shall I call them that, he said laughingly, uh, have got their hands round his throat and have dragged him to wherever it is he is today, which isn't necessarily where the Labour Party is going to be tomorrow. Uh, it's uh, people in motion, as Scott McKenzie used to say on my record player, Joe. Uh, Jude says the English lied to the Scots in 2014. Let me just deconstruct that one, Jude. The English lied to the Scots in 2014. Did any of you through there lie to the Scots in 2014? Any of you English in there lie to the Scots? Wait a minute, I'm Scots. None of them lied to me. No English people lied to me in 2014, at least as far as I recall. The promise didn't even, what are you talking about, Jude? You hopeless cause. Troy Astro says, I'm sick of hearing of Brexit, it will never pass. Well, a lot of people are sick of hearing uh, of it, Troy, but until we get Brexit behind us instead of forever in front of us, there will be no normal politics in this country. There will be no Labour, Tory, no right, left, no taxation, spending, none of the normal politics that we have lived with, most of us, All of our lives will be possible until this dichotomy, leave, remain, is resolved, and it can only be resolved by the implementation of the verdict that was given by the people in 2016. Wolfie Smith, power to the people, says, what's going on with your monologue, George? I thought you were a socialist. Wolfie, what does that even mean? mean? What does it mean? Unless you're referring to Fireman Sam, are you? Do you think it's socialist to ban Fireman Sam because he's too white and too male? Do you? Do you think it's socialist to go around offending the English language by demanding that people refer to a singular as a plural? Is that what you mean? by socialism, Wolfie? I suspect it is actually. I suspect you think that socialism is liberalism, is identity politics, is sex, gender, race, anything but class, anything but the real class issues. The issue between the rich and powerful and the poor and powerless. That's the only identity politics in which I am interested. Wolfie, if you didn't mean any of that, do, please, call us. Come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. Sammy Ansari says, George, only you can expose the conspiracies against the humanity in the parliament. Thank you, Sammy, for that. Alexander says, Assange rots in prison while Blair roams free. Not just free, Alexander. He's far from free. He's exceedingly expensive, in fact. He's amassed a hundred million pound personal fortune since leaving office, just a decade or so ago. Go figure. Just think about that. Michelle Churchland says the British legal system is so corrupt. Hashtag #Free Julian Assange and Reeve Sleeveth says the UK is a warmongering totalitarian state with a veil of tolerance and democracy. Let's take a caller. we got time? We've got time, Elena. Let's go to Pennsylvania and talk to Jared. Jared, welcome.
0: Hello, George. I, I just got back from my vacation in uh, Gettysburg. It was a lovely time visiting the battlefield there. There was just so much history. It was, it was just great. I'd love to we do that. Yes, pe-
1: I'd love to do that.
0: Oh, it, it was absolutely great. Of course, Lincoln, um, all... uh,
1: of course, Lincoln and the Union defeated the racists there and then set off to the West to massacre hundreds of thousands of Native Americans. We mustn't forget that.
0: Yes, that's that's sort of the uh, big irony of uh, of uh, all of um, of uh, um, our history was mm-hmm. that 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 great moment when we when Lincoln used the Gettysburg Address to issue the Emancipation Proclamation to liberate all the slaves in the rebel territories, only for us to go forward and um, colonize the West and along with um, overseas territories um all around the world. Yeah. And um yeah, it, it, but it was it was a good good experience. i oh, sure, sure. I hope to,
1: of- I hope to do it one day.
0: Anyway, how did you, how do you think the debates went this week? Um the debates, ABC um these debates are truly horrible. You can see the bias um by the um uh, you call them fifth columnists in your country for uh, the Blairites. I call them Vichy Dems, like uh, Vichy France for yep. uh, Nazi Germany. Yep. That's what I call uh, the, the people opposing Bernie Sanders in this um, primary because they, they didn't ask Bernie almost any questions. And when they did, it was about Venezuela. Um, a, uh, claiming that uh, uh, Maduro is a, a dictator, uh, not true. I didn't like Bernie's answer, but he didn't take the bait by calling him a dictator. He called him a tyrant, but I, I, I thought that was a bad answer. I thought it was a mistake on Bernie's part, but he didn't take the bait. Um, and it, it, it seems like that we are red baiting him, and yeah, he, you have.
1: You know, uh, let me tell you something, Jared. I'm very rarely on what they laughingly call mainstream uh, television anymore. I don't care. I've got my own radio and television platforms. But uh, long before they stopped inviting me, I took the view that whatever the question was, I was going to give my answer. The answer that I had turned up at the TV studio to give. So if they sought to red-bait me, my answer would bear no relationship to the question because I had come to the studio to deliver messages one two and three and that's what Bernie Sanders should do that's what Donald Trump does and that's what won him the presidential election yes yes I agree 100 w- percent I would it, have it, said it's... never mind Venezuela what about US servicemen that are planning to kill themselves because they cannot afford a $140,000 bill for medicine and medical treatment for which they're not insured. Never mind Venezuela, let's talk about America. That's what I would have said if I was Bernie Sanders.
0: Uh, Oh, I agree. I I wouldn't have answered any of the questions. I thought the whole thing was propaganda. Mm. I would have brought up the fact that uh, Trump blew up a peace deal with the Taliban And that war is never going to end. It's on its 18th year. And I know for a fact, because I had a brother who was over in um, uh, uh, Jalalabad, Afghanistan, so just last year. So I know for a fact It's, it's very much still going on. And it's, it's still so well, raging. I, I think it
1: was john bolton uh, that blew it up we'll see if trump reinflates yeah. it again jared many thanks for the call have got to go to peter in manchester manchester england i'm guessing peter
2: yes yeah, hello George. hello Good evening. yes go yeah, ahead I sir. Would like, yes i, I would I, i'm a bit set up with the criticism of trump uh, I would say that it showed it showed a certain maturity in hiring John Bolton, even if he didn't have, uh share the same beliefs as Bolton as long as he had something to bring to the table he hired him, and when he wasn't any good anymore, it showed decisiveness in fi- in- fi- in firing him okay go on uh Well, it it was your opinion I was was, was after. I wanted to know, do do you believe... No,
1: I uh, I, I, I think anyone who employs John Bolton is showing not uh, maturity but imbecility because absolutely no good can come from employing John Bolton and Elliot Abrams and Mike Pompeo. They are dedicated to the absolute opposite. Of what Donald Trump campaigned on in the presidential election and won on yeah. in the presidential election, uh, Trump said, and I believe him. I believe him, by the way, that he doesn't want yeah. America to be going around the world making war, nation building, yeah. occupying other countries. Uh, but Bolton and Pompeo, that's their meat and drink, Peter. Yes,
2: um, yes, 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 I believe. Do, uh, just. Just one more thing. Do you believe there are powers in the Democratic Party that would rather have Trump serve a second term than Bernie Sanders get, them, get the nomination? I,
1: I think almost all of the Democratic Party establishment are in that boat, almost all of them, and that's why they are rigging uh, this system before it's even begun. Uh, the reason why the reason why there's a list of Democratic hopefuls as long as your arm is not because okay. the Democratic Party is bursting with uh, with talent as we saw in the debates is because they need to force a second ballot at the convention if there were only two candidates two or even three candidates somebody might win on the first ballot at the convention and they can't have that why because only in the second ballot do their so-called super delegates where uh, every member of the democratic establishment has a shed load of votes in their pocket that they can then uh, deploy. So yeah, uh, my answer to that one is definitely in the affirmative, Peter. Thanks very much indeed uh, for the call. But I'm joined now uh, by uh, a very, very interesting man indeed. His name is Ron Unz. He turns out to be even more interesting than I thought that he was. Let me give you his background. He's a theoretical physicist by training. He serves as founder and chairman of UNS.org, a content archiving website. Uh, He was for six years the publisher of the American Conservative, a small opinion magazine. He ran for office in California uh, when he launched a surprise Republican primary challenge to the incumbent governor pete wilson and his campaign platform was a pro immigrant platform and against the prevailing political sentiment he received 34 percent of the vote he'll be joining us uh, shortly uh, some difficulties getting him on the line so let me continue through the, the tweets that are uh, flooding in remember uh, to at everyone involved certainly at george galloway at RTUK. Uh, but also it would be helpful if it was at, uh at gg moats uh also um now where did i get to i got to reeve uh sleeveth yeah here's one for ask adam adam i'm uh, doing this one now so you get an hour to think about it before you uh, join me uh is there any eu law that Boris and co can exploit to exit whatever whatever happens on the 31st of October. I am joined now by my guest, uh, born uh, into, uh, fascinatingly, a Yiddish-speaking household, a man of the right that is pro-immigration, a Jewish man who publishes Professor Norman FINKELSTEIN, A REPUBLICAN, A CONSERVATIVE, WHO GETS OVER A THIRD OF THE VOTE IN CALIFORNIA ON A PRO-IMMIGRANT PLATFORM. WHAT'S NOT TO WANT TO INTERVIEW? RON UNS IS ON THE LINE NOW. I HOPE. RON, ARE YOU THERE? I'M RIGHT HERE. I'M SO GLAD THAT YOU COULD JOIN US. I WAS ANXIOUS THERE WHEN uh, OUR FIRST PHONE CALL uh, DIDN'T uh, GET THROUGH. LET ME ASK YOU. Th- To get this out of the way, because I'm already getting some chaff uh, on it, Uh, you're Jewish, grew up in a Yiddish-speaking household. You publish Norman Finkelstein, but according to Wikipedia, you're an anti-Semite. What's that all about?
3: Well, I mean, to be honest, Wikipedia is not the most reliable source. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. Yeah. Right. And to be honest, I, I didn't grow up in a Yiddish-speaking household. My mother grew up in a Yiddish-speaking household. So, mm. you know, I, I basically learned, you know, speaking English from a young age.
1: Yeah. Now, so there's, uh, you're not anti-Semitic?
3: Well, I wouldn't probably say so. <laughs>
1: yeah, because that's what people are saying. Why are you interviewing an anti-Semite? Well, uh, in the CV that I have, there's no reference to the fact that you're an anti-Semite, and I'm guessing that's because you are not one.
3: Well, again, it's not really something that's ever been characterized by me in you know, the media. And I mean, to give you an example, uh, it was about uh, 15 or 20 years ago, I actually covered, I uh, published the uh, lead cover story in Commentary, which is the main publication of the American Jewish Committee. And there also was a very nice uh, profile cover story of me in the New Republic, which you know is really a very heavily Jewish publication. So at least that was never the perception that I had from those sorts of sources.
1: Okay, um, let's uh, let's press on to uh, what it was I really wanted to talk to you about because uh, my eye was caught uh, by the clarity, uh, but also I think the bravery. Uh, of your coverage of the uh, Epstein Affair uh, which uh, flowered briefly here in Britain when the Ghislaine Maxwell angle became known, uh, but has uh, long now been uh, buried, presumably uh, with uh, Jeffrey Epstein himself. Uh, Is this still a thing in the United States? Are people still talking about how it came to pass that uh, the most interesting prisoner in the american prison system managed to commit the worst case of suicide anybody had ever seen
3: well it's still getting a little bit of discussion and conversation but to be honest the media seems to be very eager to bury the whole case you know for you know a variety of reasons some of which may be you know less than honest and it's certainly you know, a very embarrassing situation, the fact that the media essentially covered up Epstein's activities for 25 years. Mm. I mean, uh, to be honest, when I'd sometimes seen some mentions of Epstein on the Internet, I sort of assumed it was just Internet nonsense. I mean, it really sounded in his activities something like a James Bond supervillain. And it just seemed to me very implausible that the American media would have covered up such activities if they were real. And then suddenly there were all these stories about him on the front page of the New York Times repeating exactly the items that I'd never believed in. In other words, somebody having a private island, the largest mansion in New York City stocked with underage girls that he provided to all of these very, very wealthy and famous people including, for example, Prince Andrew. It just sounded too implausible to be remotely real. And then suddenly it was all on the front page of the New York Times. Yes, uh,
1: the very uh, circles that would have denounced the writings that you refer to on the internet as conspiracy theories. But it it turns out not only were these conspiracy theories actually true, uh, but that the media that would have called them conspiracy theories covered them up.
3: Exactly, exactly. And the thing is, a lot of the articles I've been writing over the last couple of years deal exactly with that point. The massive volume of media cover-ups and media suppressions of enormously important stories in recent years and to be honest recent decades and uh, basically there's a clear pattern of this sort of thing and it seems to me the most important thing we should really take away from the Jeffrey Epstein case is the fact that the media, the western media is extremely unreliable and we just have to be very very careful before we believe any of its reports on a whole range of touchy and controversial issues. And so, is, is, that uh, you why,
1: is that why you've gone basically back to being a, a publisher yourself? Uh, on the And that's, I must tell you, on a, a very much smaller scale than you, uh, that's exactly what I have done. I see no virtue or purpose in, uh, in sending out press releases to what calls itself the mainstream media uh, because they'll ignore them, cover them up, and insofar as they ever publish anything, they'll distort and twist uh, the uh, points that are being made. So uh, is that what you're doing with the UNS Report?
3: Uh, That's exactly correct. In other words, I started the UNS Review a few years ago for exactly that reason, and really primarily to provide a potential venue for my own writings. But I realized that so many prominent writers, people of really tremendously high caliber had been purged from the mainstream media over the years, Mm -hmm. that there was a a potential opportunity to provide a useful platform for all of those individuals. Individuals from the left, individuals from the right, individuals from a more libertarian direction, individuals whose ideological views can't easily be characterized. But in all those cases, because they stood for views that the media did not like, they were purged from their traditional sources, and it really would be very useful to offer them a combined platform. And also, the truth is, on a lot of these controversial issues, many individuals who normally would be characterized as being on the right sometimes find themselves quite close to individuals who would be characterized as being on the left. And that's because many of them are willing to stand up for what they feel is the truth rather than bend with the prevailing winds that, you know, uh, uh, determine what the media says. Yeah,
1: One such case, uh, I've just been talking before you on the show to uh, John Shipton, the father of Julian Assange. He's another case in point, isn't he? Uh, He was uh, he was uh, someone who was once. Uh, the toast of uh, the celebrity uh, leftist uh, glitterati, chatterati classes, uh, and then was dropped like a hot brick and now languishes in Belmarsh prison. Now, indisputably, for the Iraq war blogs and the Afghan war blogs. He has no other charges, only those. And no one, not even the deep state in the U.S., claims that what he published was untrue. So he's in prison and has been uh, without liberty for almost a decade for
3: publishing that which was true. Now, that, that's exactly correct. In other words, we have somebody, just as you say, who was really lionized by the media and the liberal establishment around the world for a few years, and then suddenly they all turned against him, mm-hmm. simply because he continued to hew to the truth rather than to follow, you know, the prevailing uh, tides of elite opinion. And it's really, I mean, there are so many cases like that, that the volume, uh, once somebody starts digging into the history of the media and the number of prominent individuals over the last 50 or 60 or 70 years who've been purged from the media, on grounds, on ideological grounds, it really becomes a shocking tale. And and sometimes, for example, the media switches positions. Uh, In fact, in your country, I was just uh, looking at that uh, earlier this morning. Uh, For example, uh, a a fairly prominent leftist figure in the Labour Party of Britain, Ken Livingston, who, you know, I've been reading about for many, many years, in fact, who goes back decades, uh, a couple of years ago was purged from the Labour Party simply for pointing to the existence of the Nazi-Zionist economic partnership of the 1930s. And that's a perfectly documented, well-known historical fact that in fact was reported in the the Times of London. Mm. And so when somebody simply quotes the Times of London from the 1980s, but does so in in 2015 or 2016, he's denounced by the media and purged from the Labour Party, which is just completely ridiculous.
1: Yes, and of course, if you had all night, I could give you uh, dozens of uh, other similar stories. But Mr. Livingston was the first, and he was the most prominent victim uh, of this witch-hunting of people for telling what no one can dispute as the truth. You might argue about the good taste of raising something, you might argue uh, about the political efficacy of raising something uh, in this time at that platform. You can argue all that. But none of these warrants uh, the actual expulsion and the extinguishing of your political identity because what you said was
3: true. Exactly, exactly. And reported by the Times of London. I mean, you can't get a more establishmentarian source. That's Britain's most famous newspaper.
1: Yes, uh, it's not quite what it was, Ron, I've got to tell you. But, uh, yes, you're right. In the the, uh, past, it was the Journal of Record. Uh, Speaking of records and record players, uh, is, is it really serious that Joe Biden, with his teeth flying out across the debating hall and blood coming from his eye and talking in the arcane... Uh, uh, language of the 1970s that he seems now still to live in. Is he really going to be Donald Trump's uh, opponent uh, come the election? And if he is, Trump's going to romp home, isn't he?
3: Well, it's difficult to say what will happen in the Democratic primaries. I mean, there's obviously a lot of time to go. And I, I think there's a reasonably good chance that a couple of the other candidates, like, for example, Bernie Sanders or uh, Elizabeth Warren might end up getting the nomination. But, I mean, certainly Biden is one of the, uh, you know, is right now ahead in the polls. So there's certainly a good chance that he'd be the opponent. And if he is, I think I tend to agree with you that Trump would have a much easier time against him than against, you know, one of the other candidates.
1: Solve this conundrum for us, Ron. You're a very intelligent man. Your, Your IQ is reportedly 214. Uh, and I left school at, at 17 to go and work in the Mitchell and Tire Factory. So help me with this. Who is the real Donald Trump? Is is it the Donald Trump who campaigned for election as a man who was going to re the Rust Belt, was going to end America's involvement in unjust wars, uh, was going to stop being quote-unquote, nation-builder, was going to reset relations with Russia. And is that the real Donald Trump? Uh, and was it that Bolton and co uh, prevented the real Donald Trump from uh, coming forward, in which case presumably we'll see a different Donald Trump in the next 12 months? Uh, wh- who is the real Donald Trump in your view? Is he left? Is he right? Uh, is he stupid? Is, he, is there method in his apparent madness?
3: Well, I've never personally met him, but my strong impression of him is that the real Donald Trump is sort of a celebrity type and a fairly ignorant celebrity. In other words, if you took some television celebrity and suddenly gave them enormous political power, they probably wouldn't really know what to do with it. Mm. And they'd probably end up relying on various different advisors who temporarily won their – opinion on something. So I I think the problem is when Donald Trump ran for office, I don't think he really had a very good idea of what he wanted to do. And as he then came in, his original advisors who had one set of views were very quickly purged by the Washington, D.C. establishment. And some of them, in fact, are facing prison sentences right now. And so they were then replaced by advisors who were really much closer to the neocon Republican Party that Donald Trump had run against. In other words, many of the things Donald Trump has been doing in office are exactly the things he denounced the establishment Republican Party for supporting when he defeated them in the primaries.
1: Indeed so, yeah.
3: And it it isn't clear to me whether Donald Trump even recognizes that he's changed his views on those issues. I mean, uh, some people have clearly defined political beliefs, other people don't really pay much attention to politics. And I think Donald Trump falls into that second category. And, you know, it's easy for someone like that to be moved around by whomever they happen to be most recently listening to.
1: Uh, was it Bernard Shaw who said that someone was a sofa who bore the impression of the last person to sit on them? Uh, I'm, not, not, I'm not making any allegations about people sitting on Donald Trump, I quickly add. What about you now, Ron? Have you given up running for office? You did pretty well when you did run.
3: Oh, well, actually, that was a long time ago. And, and the thing is, I, I was very concerned at that point over the direction the California Republican Party was taking on immigration issues. And as it is, you know, I I think I played a role in helping to sort of avert some of that. And as it is, things really worked out quite well in California. And California right now is doing probably better than most other parts of the country. So, you know, I I think domestically, America has severe economic problems right now. But my main concern is really on the foreign policy side, with really what amounts to an insane foreign policy in most recent administrations and really in many ways con- continued by Donald Trump and aimed against Russia, aimed against China, aimed against Japan, Iran. And, uh, you know, things like that could get mm. very, very dangerous for the world if they're continued. And that's why, to be honest, I was very willing to support Donald Trump, not because I was tremendously impressed with him personally, but because it seemed to me at the time that Hillary Clinton and some of her views about a military intervention in Syria Mm. against the Russian troops there were potentially extremely dangerous for the world. So, I mean, the best you can say about Donald Trump is he hasn't actually started a major war yet and he's been in office for a couple of years. Well, that's right. And I just hope that continues.
1: Well, I, I put it at the time, having predicted, I may say, that Trump would win, uh, that I'm not happy that Donald Trump is the president, but I'm very happy that Hillary Clinton isn't. And I think uh, that's been borne out by the lack of uh, war-making by Trump uh, over the, 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 the first part, at least, of his first Term maybe his only term. Ron, how do people uh, read your stuff? It's uh, the UNS review, is it?
3: Exactly. Uh, it's basically UNS.com. It's uh, a website that provides a very wide range of alternative perspectives, both from the left and the right, and from really views that don't fit in one way or the other. And, uh, you know, in a sense, we really have gotten quite a lot of traffic over the last few years. In fact, we've uh, passed now uh, the nation and the new republic in terms of daily readership, which is just astonishing. Mm. And I never would have expected when we got started.
1: Well, I'm going to look at it tonight when I get home. I'm sure a lot of people listening and watching will do the same. Pleasure to make your acquaintance, Ron. Thanks very much for joining us. Now how could I resist my next guest? He's a Scotsman from Fife just across the water from where I was born, and I mean a very narrow piece of water, the River Tay. He uh, came from Fife, but he now lives in uh, considerable style uh, near Las Vegas. How so? Uh, Because he has become exceedingly rich, not at the gambling tables of Las Vegas, but by being the number one ethical hacker. You remember that Leonardo DiCaprio film, Uh, where uh, in the uh, I think it's called Catch, catch me if you can where he ends up offering his tremendous hacking abilities to corporate America so that they can guard against people like him. Well in a way that's what Mark Litchfield does. He is a brilliant hacker, totally brilliant hacker and he does so for ethical reasons and he gets well paid for it. What's not to love? Mark Litchfield, are you there on the line, son? Yes, I am, sir. How are you doing? Which part of Fife are you from? Um, so, I'm actually from our broth. From our broth? That's even better. It says Fife here. I used to go swimming in the yeah. outdoor swimming pool in our broth.
5: Yeah they shut that down a long time ago. It's very
1: cold. it was very, very cold. I've even played football at. Gayfield. Yeah. <laughs> I've even played football at Gayfield. So there you are. you're from Arbroath. So from Ar- how did you get? Tell us, from broth mm-hmm. to Las Vegas, and what happened in between?
5: Uh, okay, quick version. Yeah. Um, I went from Arbroth to London, did a job set up a company with my brother, sold the first one, then we set up a second one, then we moved, uh, I moved over to the US because we were getting a lot of work from Microsoft, set an office up over there, and then we got acquired, and I came back to Scotland, then I went back to Seattle, and from, well, I met my wife at that point, because uh, I worked remotely Uh, She said, let's go to Vegas. I was like, okay, let's go. It's certainly
1: not not cold in the open air swimming pool in Las Vegas. That's for sure. It must be the hottest place in America.
5: Uh, Right now, I have absolutely no idea what it is, but the sky is blue, extremely blue, (laughs) and it's uh, very hot. (laughs) Now, tell me about this ethical
1: hacking. How did you get into that?
5: Um, well, I started off the uh, traditional way, just teaching myself, and then, how could I put it, um, I I learned about this thing called Bug Bounty, and Yahoo um, launched this Bug Bounty program, and I thought, hey, let's give it a shot, so I did, and I found a bug, I submitted it, I just wanted to test the water, you know, see if this is all, like, legit. So I did and didn't hear anything back, then six weeks later I got an email from this company called HackerOne, who I'd never heard of at this point, and they said, hey, we've got like $2,700 for you. Do you want it? I was like, "Uh, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) And so I was like, damn, that could be money made in this, and it started from there.
1: And how far has it gone? I mean, uh, do people come looking for your services?
5: Well, uh, no, they don't, Um, and the reason why they don't have to, well, actually, that's a lie. I have done it for uh, some companies, but uh, uh, Bug Bounty has grown so tremendously right now. To begin with, it was seen as like a fad. It was like a joke, but now there's so many companies involved in Bug Bounty that uh, you can literally go online and... Sign up to HackerOne, Bug Crowd. There's a load of companies out there that are offering a lot of money if you can find, like, decent bugs there.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's millions, yeah? 19 million uh, was awarded last year to ethical hackers like you.
5: Yeah, and, well, so... I was at a live event where uh, Verizon Media paid out 1 million in one night. Okay, well, I, I, hope you, I, ethical hack.
1: I hope you got a decent share mm, of it. Sure. Of course, for every ethical hacker, there'll be several unethical hackers, won't they? People who are effectively criminals. Uh, what's the ethical hacking community's attitude to the unethical?
5: Um, okay, that's an interesting question. So the only way I would uh, turn this around is if you consider you have 1,000 white hats looking at a particular target versus one black hat looking at a target, and that black hat has already found a hole, these 1,000 other white hats will will eventually find that one hole that the black hat found and then report it and get paid for finding that issue and now you could essentially say the internet is safer and that black hat's hole is now being closed down Mm -hmm. and when I'm talking about a black hat hole I'm talking about um, a foreign state. Well is
1: it it foreign states or is it thieves and and, uh, the mischievous? Because they always try and blame it on a foreign state, don't they?
5: But it's not always. It's it's often
1: private individuals.
5: Correct. Um, Absolutely correct. But it depends on what the target is. Let's say it's Lockheed Martin. Now, if I was a foreign state, I would be going after not their database of customers. I'd be going after their research and development, where they've spent billions of dollars... And now I can immediately steal that, and I've just got all that research, God knows how many years of research, and I instantly own it. Mm -hmm. So that would be a plastic trainer. Yeah. Then you have um, the other types of attacks, which is the ones you're referring to is the ransomware. But, But ransomware isn't really, that's not hacking, that's just sending like a link to someone's email But they clicked on it, and they've basically exploited themselves.
1: Okay. But what about all this malarkey of uh, interference in elections and so on? Uh, You're now in America. America has been, uh, Mm -hmm. until the Mueller uh, uh, died a death uh, a few months ago, the United States was entirely Mm -hmm. fixated with the idea uh, that uh, Vladimir Putin had... uh, HACKED THEIR ELECTION, BUT HE DIDN'T.
5: OKAY. I'M NOT GOING TO PROCLAIM TO BE AN EXPERT IN THIS. OKAY. Uh, I WOULD SUGGEST um, ALEX STAMOS WOULD BE A GOOD PERSON TO TALK TO. Um, I KNOW HIM. HE'S A GREAT GUY. YEAH. Uh, WE'LL PUT HIM him ON THE uh,
1: SHOW NEXT WEEK. SO WHAT'S (laughs) LIKE, HOW DOES THE FUTURE LOOK FOR YOU, MARK?
5: Uh, the future look great. Are you going to stay there in the US? I can't. Uh, yep. Um, actually, today I packed up my house. I'm moving. I'm going to Hawaii. Okay. I have to leave Vegas. Um, and I bought a bar. <laughs> and I'm still going to keep hacking, doing what I do. You've bought a bar uh, in uh, Hawaii. i a bug hunter. Yeah, I, I, can't, I get the keys on the first of October.
1: I can't tempt you back to our broth then. No chance. <laughs> <laughs> God bless you and your wife. Thank you very much indeed, Mark, for coming on the mother of all talk shows. Adam, I gave you notice of Ian Puddock's question, uh, but let's broaden it a little. On the face of it Boris Johnson is heading for complete disaster, uh, he appears set on a course uh, that cannot possibly prevail and could end in him going to prison, <laughs> maybe even next to Julian in, <laughs> uh, in Belmarsh though I suspect they'd find a feather pillow for him. I
6: think more Nawaz Sharif
1: than Julian Assange,
6: yes. not that it will happen. Yes.
1: Um, So he must have something up his sleeve
6: or he really is an idiot. Does he have something up his sleeve? What could it be? Well, he'd better have something up his sleeve. The issue in English law, which let's have a bit of that for a change, is a matter of parliamentary supremacy versus royal prerogative. Now the short version of the difference between the two is as follows. If there's something that is singular and permanent, it is generally the charge of royal prerogative. If it's something ongoing and manifold, it tends to be the kind of thing dealt with by by Parliament, an issue in which Parliament is supreme. For example, foreign affairs are generally the reserve of royal prerogative. That means the Queen and Parliament, which in the real world means the Prime Minister and the government, gets to make foreign treaties. The, the Parliament, the House of Commons and the House of Lords cannot make treaties. No. They didn't go to, the, to Versailles to end the Great War. And one of the areas that we can test for royal prerogative applies is this. There doesn't need to be an enforcement mechanism to END A WAR. ONCE THE GREAT WAR IS ENDED, YOU CAN'T RESTART IT. YOU CAN FIGHT A SECOND WAR, BUT YOU CAN'T RESTART THE FIRST. WHERE FOR SOMETHING LIKE, LET'S SAY, IF WE HAVE A HAT TAX, WHERE ANYONE WHO WEARS A HAT NEEDS TO PAY A NEW TAX, I SHOULDN'T GIVE ANY OF THESE PEOPLE IDEAS, ideas. (laughs) BUT ONE WOULD NEED TO SET UP A MECHANISM uh, TO ENFORCE IT AND THEN TO TAX PEOPLE LIKE ME WHO AREN'T WEARING A HAT TO PUNISH US IF WE REFUSE TO PAY. AND SO BECAUSE IT'S AN ISSUE OF FOREIGN AFFAIRS, IF THIS SO-CALLED Called Ben bill and the irony of the author's surname shouldn't be lost on anyone since mr. Hillary Ben's father Tony Ben was one of the great brexiteers of all time even though the term hadn't been invented the legal argument that Johnson would have to deploy if it comes to a standoff in court is that the the government which is the to say the Queen cannot be bound by an act of Parliament in future foreign relations because this would effectively bind the government from it would prohibit the government from exercising certain rights and privileges that it has in making foreign treaties and this would be a real showdown because both were up, the queen is supreme but so is parliament rarely do they clash but this could be the mother of all clashes there wouldn't be much time uh, for uh, a crisis because
1: we'll not know what johnson is going to do until he goes to brussels for the European Council meeting, I think it's on the 17th? Yes, 17th of Uh, October. And uh, we're uh, ineluctably bound to leave, uh, absent any other mechanism, uh, on the 31st. So that's only 11, 14 days. That would require an epic Supreme Court battle to be done, dusted, and adjudicated all within 14 days. And now the wheels of justice grind exceedingly fine, but they also grind exceedingly slow.
6: Yes, quite right. And this Supreme Court, another ghostly invention of Tony Blair, Mm. uh, who took away the power of the law lords to adjudicate in the same way, according to the common law, but in an existing ancient institution of parliament, it will be a matter of them perhaps having to decide ex post facto. He may well have already taken Britain out of the EU using his royal prerogative prerogative, um, as given to him by the Constitution and then having, then the court would have to decide in the aftermath. Getting back to the other question about EU law, it gets even more murky because EU law is a minefield, and anyone who passes it gets a big kiss on the lips from Angela Merkel or Guy Verhofstadt or any of them in the EU. But there are two ways, and it's quite esoteric, but we're in esoteric times, legally speaking. Two things that could be legally deployed. For Johnson in his corner. The first would be the Lisbon Treaty. The Lisbon Treaty specifically states, and this is the EU Constitution under a, under a, a, a yeah. misleading name. Yeah, yeah. It states they changed this
1: name because it was defeated as a constitution. Quite right. In, in referenda. In, in referenda in more than one country.
6: Indeed. And so rather than accept the vote, they just said, right, it's, it's the same document, but we're going to call it something that seems a bit less monolithic. In any case, that document says that with. WITHIN TWO YEARS FROM THE DAY THAT A MEMBER OF THE EU DECIDES TO INVOKE ARTICLE 50 IN ORDER TO PREPARE FOR A WITHDRAWAL, THAT COUNTRY MUST WITHDRAW FROM THE UNION. THEREFORE, JOHNSON COULD SAY, I MUST DISOBEY THE BEN BILL, WHICH demands THAT THE GOVERNMENT ASKS FOR a EXTENSION, BECAUSE THAT WOULD BE ASKING FOR SOMETHING ILLEGAL. AND IT IS PERFECTLY RIGHT TO REFUSE TO OBEY LEGAL ORDERS. IT MIGHT GET YOU KICKED OUT OF THE LABOR PARTY, BUT IT WOULD BODE WELL for someone at the the Nuremberg trials, and so it's it's an esoteric argument in EU law, but he could make that without prejudice to what Mrs. May and the others have already done. Then there's a second issue which would invoke both European law and English common law, and that would be to say since the European Council of Ministers is the forum in which Britain and the EU negotiate, it isn't for Parliament to interfere in that two-way relationship between one government and the 27 other governments. Do I think those EU law arguments will work? No, because the EU has a very clever way of disregarding its written constitution whenever it wants, a bit like what America, unfortunately, does. I think the arguments in English law about parliamentary supremacy versus royal prerogative and foreign affairs, that's going to be the crux of the issue unless some very clever government barrister can poke some specific holes in the Ben Bill which would then, uh, it would take away the necessity of having to go to this constitutional argument. How very interesting, Uh, now uh, I need to correct, Uh, the tickets for Liverpool are
1: from uh, ticket quarter, although it says on that screen ticket quater, (laughs) uh, ticket quarter, but this can all easily be resolved if my friends through the glass can bring me a piece of paper with the details, all the details of our Liverpool. Roadshow. Let's take our first caller though to Adam. It's James in London. James, welcome. Oh, hello, George. How are you? Good. Thank you very much. Thanks
3: for the call. Go ahead. Yeah, a very simple thing. And, you know, you're certainly
7: a a more learned and educated man than me. I just wanted to know why, when the media talks about Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell, they talk about Marxism.
4: Yeah. And
3: why not? I mean... (laughs) Nobody seems to talk about Marxism, I mean, is there any reference historically where these kind of principles work? I think, is is Venezuela not the most recent example of the the disaster of these principles? I just, I I look at these people as lunatics, I I, I, I think Jeremy Corbyn is an extremist. Really, I I don't
1: actually think any of the three parties to whom you referred there are Marxist. I'm certain that Jeremy Corbyn is not a Marxist. And I'm pretty sure uh, that uh, John Macdonald, though he once was uh, one, uh, is no longer. Uh, As to whether Venezuela is uh, guided by Marxism, again, I doubt that. I think that Venezuela is more southern than left. It's more Latin American than left. It's a bit like how they used to describe, you know, Vietnam and so on. Uh, Vietnam's struggle against the United States had nothing to do uh, initially with communism or or Marxism. It was a struggle for national independence against a big power seeking to uh, subjugate it, and I think rather that Venezuela is in the same boat. Uh, Neither do I believe that you're correct when you imply, infer, uh, that socialist politics is what has brought Venezuela low. What has brought Venezuela low is the determination of the United States to uh, destroy the Venezuelan revolution which was as you recall uh, um, led by Hugo Chavez. But let me take more philosophically your, uh, your main point. Um, British, the British Labour Party has never been Marxist. It famously was said uh, that it owed more to Methodism than Marxism. And I think that Jeremy Corbyn is far more analogous to Michael Foote than he is to uh, Vladimir Lenin. Uh, And by the way, on the Brexit issue, uh, Mr. Corbyn had identical views to Mr. Foote, but not because they were Marxist.
6: Adam, pitch in. Well, I think the biggest problem with the Labour Party is its dysfunctionality I'm, I'm totally anti-ideological myself. I don't have an ideology. I go with what works. I believe in pragmatism, and there's very, very little of that, frankly, in either party. It's as if both parties are competing to see who can muck it up the most. But in general, we're living in one of the in an age where cheap and easy rhetoric is flying everywhere. Yeah. So anyone to the right of Vladimir Lenin is called a Nazi, and anyone uh, and anyone you know to the OF TONY BLAIR'S RIGHT PINKY FINGER IS CALLED A MARXIST OR A COMMIE OR or THE REST OF IT. I'M REALLY NOT INTERESTED IN ANY OF THESE LABELS. IF A POLITICIAN IS SUCCESSFUL, IT'S BECAUSE THE ECONOMY GREW RATHER THAN SHRUNK, EMPLOYMENT INCREASED RATHER THAN DECREASED, CRIME WENT DOWN RATHER THAN UP, WAR DECREASED RATHER THAN INCREASED, TERRORISM DECREASED AS WELL. THESE ARE ALL THE KINDS OF TESTS I WOULD USE. SO YOU LOOK WHEN THERE'S AN OPPOSITION PARTY WHOSE LEADER HASN'T BEEN IN GOVERNMENT BEFORE, YOU HAVE TO JUST ASK, ARE THESE POLICIES GOING TO WORK, YES OR NO? I THINK EMILY THORNBURY GAVE THE WORD, well, that answer a few weeks ago.
1: Uh, James, last word to you, my friend. James, are you still there? Oh, what a pity. Uh, James, uh, did give you the right of reply. I'm sorry we lost you. Let's go to Louisiana in the United States. Dr.
0: Patrick. Patrick, welcome back. Uh, it's great to hear your voices, gentlemen. Thank Always you. a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you, Patrick. And- Uh, Thank you. Thank you. I wanted to call about the uh, dastardly uh, love child of a walrus, otherwise known as uh, John Bolton. Um, (laughs) With his his departure, do you think that his replacement could potentially be just as bad, if not worse, than he, or do you think Trump will pivot possibly and go in a different direction?
1: Well, I I mean, we'll ask Adam. Uh, He knows, uh, he follows these things a bit more closely than me. Uh, He even knows uh, this guy that wasn't in the Eagles, but is running uh, (laughs) for president against Trump. Um, But my view is that it would be hard to find someone worse than John Bolton, uh, number one. And number two, uh, that uh, Trump would be exceedingly foolish to go looking for one. Uh, It seems to me that uh, particularly the trade war. Actually that he's fighting with China is now beginning to hurt him Electorally in quite a serious way, so he needs to de-escalate the foreign policy confrontations that he is now in and uh, He cannot do
6: that by appointing another John Bolton Adam well, I agree with you. For You can't really get worse than John Bolton unless he appoints Tony Blair as his national security advisor and appoints John Bolton the peace envoy to the Middle East. But barring such a horrific Friday the 13th scenario, I think to quote Tony Blair's favorite song, things can only get better. Uh, I think that Trump has always been sincere when he's about big money uh, rather than big war. He's about a Gulf war with a uh, with, a, a, with golf a golf club as opposed, to, as opposed to golfs of Tonkin and golfs of Persia and the rest we're of it. We're patenting that one. Oh, uh, absolutely. Trump is more golf war than golf war. <laughs> it's a bit of a tongue twister, but you know, the meaning uh, is superlative. But yeah, I think that it'll be interesting to see who he picks, if it were me, I would put Senator Rand Paulin, the son of the greatest American president there never was, Dr. Ron Paul. But there have been other, there's a person called McGregor, his first name, slips my mind, but he's given speeches that are very much in line with this non-interventionist pragmatic view that Trump has voiced. We'll know when we know, but there's also been voices that have said that the role of National Security Advisor might be reduced as it frequently is. The most powerful in recent memory was, of course, Brzezinski, who guided Jimmy Carter's foreign policy very poorly, I might add. And then, of course, there was Henry Kissinger before him, who at one point was both Secretary of state and national security advisor. He was a very powerful fellow. I think what we'll see now is a reduction in the influence of that particular role and an increase in Pompeo's influence which will make some people shudder and I can understand why, but what all Pompeo is, he's a neocon because he can't really afford to be anything else. He hasn't got the creativity for peace, but he's a yes man and at the end of the day he wants to keep Trump happy. He wants to keep his job. He'll go along with the flow, where the walrus John Bolton swam against the current, and now he's been released back into his natural habitat, which is somewhere between an A bomb and an H bomb, I should think.
1: <laughs> Brilliant, Patrick. Last word to you.
0: Well, I totally agree, Adam. I think I'm hoping that it, I'm hoping that it will be a non-interventionist like a like a uh, Senator Rand Paul's. So, you know, with this administration,
7: you never know. So I I certainly don't
1: intend to get my hopes up. No, we'll not bet our houses on it, Patrick. uh, That's if I had a house to bet. Patrick, thank you very much indeed for that call from Louisiana. Let's take a call from Tony in the aforementioned Liverpool. Tony, welcome.
4: Good evening, George. Good evening, Adam. Um, How are you? Uh, my, my question is related to the uh, the Brexit scenario. Still, George. I, I was just going to touch you on the point. Uh, we, we, we uh, as far as I'm still aware, we do have a, a veto, um, and at the upcoming, the impending EU summit, yeah, can Boris Johnson? Does he still have it within his power to use the veto to actually veto the, the Ben Bill? Uh, and at previous uh, EU summits, did Theresa May have that veto right herself and did she just choose not to exercise that veto?
1: Uh, well, it's a very good question. Of course, that could be the rabbit that he has up his sleeve, but there are two issues. Uh, first of all, you'll recall uh, on Theresa May's last hapless ill-fated visit to negotiate with the EU. They kept her waiting outside, even eating outside. They, they made her dine alone. Uh, and sit outside while they were deliberating about us. They did not allow her into the room. Now, I suppose theoretically you could try and force a court judgment in Europe uh, that uh, granted us our right to be there and the use of our veto. But perhaps a larger problem is that if he did go to Brussels and do that, he would clearly uh, not just have ignored the... Ben Bill, I hate to call it that, uh, but he would have blown it up. He would have literally taken proactive steps to uh, contradict and destroy uh,
6: what is now an act of Parliament with royal assent, Adam. Well, if Emily Thornberry becomes a judge on the European Court of Justice, then then quite, you know, the pensions and all that, then perhaps Boris could veto his own request because Thornberry, of course, wants to veto her own negotiations should she ever get near power. Let's hope she does not, uh, speaking for myself only there. Uh, Most legal experts, though, agree that you can't veto something that you yourself have suggested. And the other legal argument is when you're giving a request, you don't really have any power over how. THAT REQUEST IS GRANTED. YOU'RE ASKING SOMEONE ELSE FOR SOMETHING. YOU'RE NOT ASKING YOURSELF TO DO SOMETHING IN THE PROACTIVE SENSE. FRANKLY, WHAT SHOULD HAVE BEEN DONE, IF I WERE BORIS JOHNSON, I WOULD HAVE CALLED OFF THE PROROGATION uh, AND THEN MADE PARLIAMENT VOTE ON A REPEAL OF THAT ACT OF CONSTITUTIONAL VANDALISM CREATED BY THE USED CAR SALESMAN, NICK CLEGG AND HIS BEST BUDDY, DAVE CAMERON, CALLED THE FIXED TERM Parliaments ACT. AND IF YOU REPEAL, YOU COULD REPEAL THAT WITH A SIMPLE majority, not necessarily that easy for Boris to get, but far easier than the impossible three-fourths majority necessary to call a snap election under that act. If he were to muster that 50.1% of the parliament behind the repeal of that act, then he could just go to the Buckingham Palace and ask the queen to dissolve the parliament like what uh, Justin Trudeau uh, just proverbially did uh, in Canada, or what Netanyahu did in Israel, or any other normal sense of parliament. A DEMOCRACY THAT HASN'T BEEN DESTROYED BY DAVE AND NICK. THAT'S WHAT I WOULD HAVE DONE. IT DOESN'T LOOK LIKE THAT'S GOING TO HAPPEN, BUT I'LL, I'll SAY SOMETHING ELSE BECAUSE I th- THINK IT'S QUICKLY WORTH SAYING. THE BIGGEST ENEMY TO BREXIT ISN'T THE LIB DEMS, IT ISN'T LABOR, IT ISN'T THE 20, the 21 WHO HAVE BEEN KICKED OUT OF THE TORY PARTY. IT'S DOMINIC CUMMINGS, BORIS JOHNSON'S RIGHT-HAND MAN, WHO'S HATED FAMOUSLY BY PEOPLE LIKE GINA MILLER AND JOHN MAJOR, BUT HE'S ALSO SOMEONE who's SAID INCREDIBLY NOT, things about the true architect of Brexit, Nigel Farage. He was one who was a soft Brexiteer from the beginning, and he's someone who's openly, pro. well, uh, not openly, but he is prohibiting this uh, Brexit alliance between all MPs and all parties who support Brexit, which normally would be the Brexit party of Farage, the Conservative party of Johnson, and people like Kate Hoey on the Labour side, like others on the left centre and those who previously had no affiliation. Cummings is an egotist and I really think because of that he's giving Boris some very bad uh, suggestions and the proof is in the pudding. Things are looking bad. The brilliant plan has backfired spectacularly. Now it's in court on Tuesday, isn't it? I believe so, yes. In the Supreme Court. Not this issue but the other, the prorogation issue prorogation. will be in court on Tuesday, Why did yes. he bother with
1: prorogation? Because
6: the parliament has done its worst anyway. in the time it had available, left. He's getting really bad advice. If he was going to prorogue Parliament, just prorogue it through the 31st. But he didn't do that. He gave them enough time to sabotage what he wanted, but not enough time to do what I would have done, which is to try to attain a simple parliamentary majority to throw out the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act that would let him then dissolve Parliament and call an election.
1: You know, in this very building, uh, Peter Mandelson... (laughs) <laughs> uh, set about the modernization of the Labour Party. I was in favour of modernising the method, uh, <laughs> just not modernising the content. Yes. Uh, but the modernization of the method was very impressive. I know that because I was a Labour Party official under Michael Foote and I was a Labour Party uh, member of Parliament. Uh, When these people came to power so I could see compare and contrast now in this very building Mandelson and co would have considered it Anathema someone would have been fired for allowing the prime minister to approach a fortune teller on a (laughs) seafront With cameras in tow without knowing what the fortune teller was going to say even cross her Palm with silver uh, in order that she doesn't embarrass you but she utterly humiliated Johnson who's running that show I asked myself today
6: I mean, if it, were, if it were Mandelson and Campbell in charge, so it would have probably planted someone, dressed them up dressed like a up gypsy, a and killer. then say, well, I think that Mr. Blair is modernizing the country, and <laughs> I think he's the greatest thing since the sliced crystal ball. And, and uh, this whole thing, it is looking a bit chaotic. It makes the, the, the early months, uh, and mind you, that was even more chaotic than now. The early months of the Donald Trump White House looked like the Politburo of the Communist Party of Compared China. to this, yeah. It's really, and I personally, uh, I, I admit, I'll I'll lay my own cards on the line. I don't like Cummings, because I don't like his views about Brexit that he expressed in 2016. I don't like how he's attacking the golden goose of Brexit, which love him or hate him, is Nigel Farage. And just look at what's going... If this is your great, brilliant strategist, if this is your Rasputin, then he's not really doing doing much good, whether it's the fortune teller or whether it's lacking the very foresight to realise that if you give Parliament a few days before prorogation, they're not just going to sit there praising John Burko. They'll do that, but they did other things too. Exactly. So, Tony, thanks for the call. Max is in Surrey.
0: He's on next. Go ahead, Max. Uh, good evening, John. Um, good to, to do your great show again. Thank I think you. you should be on more often, actually. But, um, yeah. I miss you sometimes. <laughs> uh, quick, quick question. Um, so, in India, they recently. Uh, Remove the status for uh, a million people speak three indian citizens and this particular policy uh, disproportionately affects the the muslim population um so that's been going for a while and the official register now has removed uh, approximately about a million people today i was reading on rt that modi is opening a a, a concentration camp for non-citizens i was curious um what adam thinks will be the crunch points for some kind of international intervention because the current Hindu party is becoming the Nazi party? Well, uh, um, of course, uh, Adam
1: will answer for himself, but let me be absolutely clear uh, armed intervention against India is not going to happen, should not happen, would be catastrophic were it to happen. Uh, I, I have, I'm not in second place to anyone in my feelings about Mr Modi. Uh, But at the end of the day, India is an independent country. Uh, It uh, it has a government that was re-elected with an increased majority very recently, and unfortunately it's using that parliamentary power uh, to really cut a swathe through all that was good uh, about India in the past. Adam, you're an expert. On India. Give us your view.
6: Well, I'm in 100% agreement with that. I think that the BJP, Modi's party, it's an absolute abomination, but it's only going to fall from within. He's had some scandals, but that didn't affect the election for the reasons that you just explained, but India is fast becoming a prison of nations, which was of course the term that was used about the Soviet Union uh, in the 70s and 80s, and before that Lenin actually said that about Russia. Lenin was of course very wrong, Russia was never a prison of nations. The Soviet Union on the other hand, well, we'll leave that for another day. Um, but India's becoming a place where a, a northern clique, so states like Uttar Pradesh, states like Gujarat, this so-called cow belt, the Hindi belt, is essentially creating a several apartheid within one. Sikhs are being suppressed. Assamese are being suppressed. The entire south is essentially being ignored and treated like a foreign country. And Muslims are being attacked outrageously in India proper, which is to say nothing about the occupation turned violent annexation of Jammu and Kashmir. Uh, Dalits, low-cost India. Are being treated horribly and. IF THE ECONOMY FOR THE MIDDLE CLASS PEOPLE WHO HAVE THUS FAR IGNORED THESE ISSUES AROUND THE SOCIAL PERIPHERY, WHICH IN INDIA IS LARGER THAN THE CENTER, IF WE'RE TALKING ABOUT ECONOMICS, ONCE THE ECONOMY STARTS TO HAVE A DOWNTURN, AND I BELIEVE OVER THE NEXT YEAR, YEAR AND A HALF IT WILL, AND ONCE PEOPLE GET INCREASINGLY FED UP AND AGITATED, WE'RE GOING TO SEE A LOT OF INTERNAL strife. And ONE THING TO LOOK OUT FOR SPECIFICALLY IS NEXT YEAR IN 2020, the Sikhs of Indian Punjab are set to hold a referendum, democratic, peaceful referendum on self-determination, just as the Scots have the right to do, just as the Catalans should have the right to do, just as anyone in the world should have the right to do. If India crushes that referendum under the force of violence, we're going to see, I think, much more consternation and many more challenges to the hegemony of the BJP from within than we've previously seen. Thanks,
1: uh, Max, for the call. Vincent is in South Wales. Go ahead, uh, Vincent.
0: Yeah, thank you very much, George. Uh, And uh, I'd like to uh, agree with Adam in respect to. Can you turn your your radio
1: down, Vincent? Yeah? Turn your radio down, because we're getting feedback. Okay, sorry about that. Right. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Anyway, I agree in principle with.
0: On
1: this, is, uh, three now, can we uh, stop this one because uh, it's impossible, uh, we're hearing it, uh, we're hearing everything twice. Uh, try and get back to Vincent uh, if you can and talk him through the need to turn your uh, radio down. Uh, so the telephone number uh, for people is, if you're in the UK, 02077 982 255. And if you're in the US, 001-757-744-4480. Lots of uh, Twitter questions for you, uh, Adam. Um, Marie McFarlane, my old friend up in Scotland, says, Adam, what do you think of the recent dumping of Boeing by China and its return to the gold standard in replacing
6: the dollar? Well, first of all, China has not gone on the gold standard at all. What they are doing it's is buying they're buying gold. gold and lots of it which could just be a long term and i mean very long term preparation for one day going on the gold standard. but right now America is china 's best customer. If China starts selling in gold and America starts buying it in its monopoly money painted on that green paper <laughs> that 's not good for either side but China's looking to the long term China has a very un- hysterical culture, which is one of the reasons I'm a great admirer of it. Uh, Back to the Boeing issue, Uh, there's more to that than meets the eye. Right now, the trade war has gone from stick mode into carrot mode. The Chinese have started to buy more U.S. agricultural products as a gesture of goodwill, and Trump has reciprocated by delaying the onset of further tariffs, which if the next few rounds of trade talks go well, may, I stress may, not even be necessary. The Boeing thing is a sword with two ends. On the one hand, there are very serious concerns about this Boeing 737 Max jet that has had multiple fatal crashes in a very short period of time. I personally wouldn't get on one of those planes if asked to do so at an airport. Uh, so there's the safety issue, which is very real. And China's in the capacity to buy planes from whomever they want. They're the second richest country in the world, going on the first. Then there's the Subtext if a trade deal is done China can then say well look if you don't want to give us a good deal We're going to go to monsieur macron and and uh, frau merkel uh, and talk about uh, Airbus purchases, but as part of the trade deal boeing could get Rehabilitated so to speak in the Chinese market, so there's a lot going on there boeing's down not necessarily out for good Vincent uh, is
1: back on the line from South Wales. Go ahead, Vincent. Yeah, thank you very much,
0: George. Uh, yeah, in relation to no deal at the end of October, I think there are three key points that may well be in the quiver of Boris's English bow. The first one is that EU law is considered a higher status than UK law, whilst we are a member of the EU. The second point is the royal prerogative is important and relative in respect to foreign treaties stroke article 50 and the third point is the bill of rights 1689 within our common law constitution is still law in the land and these three factors can be used to combat the coup in parliament through the hillary Benn
3: bill thank you
1: Thank you, Vincent. Adam, you've dealt with one of those points already,
6: the prerogative one, but the other two? Well, uh, sadly, EU law is superior to UK law. As that's one of the, of the points, reasons Brexit is not one, one of been. the reasons why we voted to leave. I'd like a bit of English law back. Uh, call me old-fashioned. I think the common law served very well from the time of Hastings up to 1973 when Mr. Heath fiddled about on his organ. Uh, sorry, Mr. Heath. But uh, getting, getting back to the third point, again, I, I'm, I'm roasting David Cameron because his, uh, his, uh, his book is out. His book is out, available at all good people. Pig we'll, the land review over. It. we'll review it next week if we can. <laughs> Quite so. He's, David Cameron, the Norfolk pig farmer. Indeed. And he was saying when he was prime minister that we need a bill of rights in this country. There is one. <laughs> Mm. So I don't know if the man was just stupid or pig-headed or what. Um, (laughs) Pig-headed? would not mention pig-heads and David Cameron in the
1: same (laughs) radio broadcast. Not live, at least.
6: Go ahead. Well, I think we're into the quadruple entendre territory now. Uh, But you're absolutely right. Uh, The Bill of Rights gives certain privileges of representation to the people. It, it, It promoted the idea that one can petition Parliament. And this was an age before universal suffrage, but foundations of being of having a parliament representative of the people as opposed to one that simply follows some foreign diktat or some royal diktat. it 's all in there, and it 's very important and it should be invoked uh, it will be invoked i 'm sure if this goes before the Supreme Court, uh, which it will but then there 's this other question that is far more banal than all this high minded talk of constitutionality Boris keeps talking about wanting a deal and when he says a deal he doesn't mean the straightforward free trading agreement that I want that I think you want uh, that Mr Farage wants that most people on the Brexit side would want that maybe even Tony Benton would have wanted you know I can't speak for him he wasn't necessarily a big exponent of free trade but nor was he one of these stupid isolationists he knew all about the 1930s and the economic stupidity there on all sides Um, if Boris tries to ram May's bill through Parliament by reheating it minus the backstop and it passes. Or, or with a backstop called something else. Quite right. That's that's very possible. Then we could see a betrayal, not of the Constitution, not of questions of royal prerogative versus parliamentary sovereignty, but we could have brino, Brexit in name only. And then there's the other complicated issue. If the EU agreed to such a bad deal and Boris tries to get it through Parliament and it fails, then we're sort of back to square one with a standard between royal prerogative it and the rest of It would likely fail, wouldn't it? Because the I DUP think so. uh,
1: would not support it. The hardline half of the ERG uh, wouldn't support it. Labour and Liberal and Nationalists wouldn't support it because, mm. because they, don't want, uh, they don't want any kind of Brexit.
6: Or you think they might cross the floor? I mean, not for me to call them dishonest and hypocritical, <laughs> but I think Liberal I, Democrats. <laughs> well, how Dishonest. many. honest. I mean, most people who were in the party weren't even in the party a few months ago. They've
1: got more Tory MPs than they have
6: Liberal Democrat <laughs> MPs it, now it, sitting in the Liberal Democrats. I mean, the whole thing is so surreal. They've got a
1: guy now who three, four weeks ago was running to be the leader of the Conservative Party. <laughs> He's now a Liberal Democrat <laughs> MP. How many MPs in the British Parliament today uh, are uh, in the same party they were when they were elected? to the British Parliament just two years ago.
6: It's extraordinary. I I don't know the number, but I've lost count of it. I mean, the Liberal Democrats have become so green, they're recycling members of Parliament now. (laughs) Uh, But so getting back, I agree with, I certainly think that the ERG, at least most of them, this hardline Brexit faction of the Tory party without whom Johnson couldn't govern at all, Mm. uh, they they would reject it. I would think that uh, some Labour would reject it, most Liberals would reject it, the Nationalists would reject it, but if enough Labour MPs jumped on board as a way to get this out of the way so they could safely throw Corbyn off the Titanic before anyone's looking, they could vote for this Bryno deal. Well they, they, could. they had
1: plenty of chances to do it, they had three chances to do it and there was never uh, more than a dozen of them, mm-hmm. usually seven, eight, nine of them, uh, voted for Theresa May's uh, deal. Uh, it depends. Do they hate Corbyn more than they hate the Theresa May deal? Uh, do they uh, want Tom Watson to be their uh, leader? Do they want uh, John MacDonald to be their leader? Uh, there are all kinds of variables. Quite so. There's a legend on the line. It's the legend that is Norma in Bristol. Norma, welcome back to the show. Go ahead.
8: Hello. Hello, George. Hello, Adam. Good
6: evening, Norma.
8: Um, actually, I just wanted to say it was so sad that John shipped an interview. It with was, yeah. yeah? Yeah, but it was really... Well, it, I thought it was unbelievable. Yeah. But my contribute, I've still got an echo. No,
1: you're, you're <laughs> addressing the world now. It's no longer just the country. There's people all over the world mm. listening to you right now beautifully.
8: Well, I am an, I'm an internationalist. Yep. My contribution seems to pay into significance really from that John Shipton one. But no. I wanted to ask Adam, uh, last night of the proms, uh, there are some lovely programmes throughout the season, but the last 45 minutes, I never watched, I just put it on and switched off. It upsets me because, They've ruled Britannia, um, and then you have the lovely music of Elgo, the Pomp and Circumstance. But I hate the land of hope and glory and mightier, yes, I'm mightier. And uh, do we really need the national anthem? And then they pop balloons in the audience when the music's going on, which is bad-mannered. All I liked was Old Lang Syne at the end. I
1: just wondered what Adam thought. Yeah, uh, well, uh, you know, I think Land of Hope and Glory is the most glorious and beautiful tune. Oh, um, if Yeah, if we, were to make it, if we were to make it our national anthem, we'd need to change the words. Exactly. Uh, but the tune itself is sublime, you I think. Yeah. Uh, Adam, over to you, it's your, uh, your field more than mine.
6: Well, um, I think that Elgar's uh, pomp and circumstance march and the lyrics of land and hope and glory are fine, just the way they are. There's actually Vera Lynn sings it beautifully. That's you can see that online. I, I love no, all the all the musical compositions. I have no problem with at all. I think they're great. The problem I had with the last night of the Proms last night uh, was that. Provocateurs passed out for free EU flags to just about everyone in the audience. Why was that allowed? I mean, they knew it was going to happen. It's yep. happened every year for the last few. And not only was it allowed, but the BBC cameras never stopped focusing on them. There was even one man who appeared to who appeared to be carrying with him a balloon phallus capped with some sort of EU insignia. Disgraceful, frankly. And I just thought on a night that's supposed to be about a national celebration with uh, British composers and international audiences, I don't have any problem with people bringing flags from all over the world as they always have because that's what York Music is about. Music's about sharing one culture with another and then seeing where it goes after that. That's absolutely wonderful. But to bring an overtly political uh, uh, symbol, for example, if there was someone carrying a Brexit party flag or a UKIP flag or a Labour flag or a Tory flag, that would have been considered controversial. The EU flag, though, is a political symbol, especially, especially with what's no. going yeah. on right now. Mm. And I just think that was disgraceful. But the music itself, uh, give me Algar and Royal Britannia over the more modern stuff any day. Uh, Norma, yeah, last word to you.
8: It's just I, I'm an internationalist. I like music from all over the world. Same I don't yet. like pushing our country up like Royal Britannia and mightier yet and mightier. I don't like all it. All
6: countries have songs that talk about how great yes. they are, but that's, we can be international in our musical taste, which I certainly am, and still respect that all countries talk about their own real or perceived greatness in uh, their national music. Uh,
1: and of course we, we could have gone out with John Lennon, a working class hero from our own land. Uh, he could have, uh, we could have gone out with him singing, all we are saying is give peace a chance. Um, now. Mind you, Ringo wouldn't have been uh, popular there. I forgot about (laughs) our controversy on Ringo. They were trying to drum him (coughs) out of the (laughs) uh, Brownies this week. Thanks, Norma. Uh, Last call, I think, will be from Heath in Daytona Beach. Go ahead, Heath. Daytona Beach is in California, I'm guessing. No, Florida. No. (laughs) No, it's Florida. It's warm. It's sunny anyway. Go ahead.
7: (laughs) Thank you. Um, Thank you, George. So um, I just wanted to make the comment that um, people are consistently saying, politicians and and mainstream media, that everybody is tired of Brexit and they're tired of not getting forward. And I I just wanted to put out there that I disagree with that. I'm highly active on Twitter and Facebook and other social media, and I believe that people are... More engaged in democracy than at any time that I've been alive, and I think that the next stage of this, having watched the the Brexit constituency win the argument consistently, that we need more democracy, not less oh yeah, and I would like to know your thoughts on um, making the case for the next referendum that we need in the United Kingdom is to move our political system towards a proportional representation
1: system? Well, I've supported that all my life, even when I was the beneficiary of its alternative, its undemocratic alternative, which is the voting system that we now have. I personally lobbied both Tony Blair and Gordon Brown when they had the power and the majority to do so, to introduce proportional representation. Uh, which is fair votes, fair representation Um, and that was uh, when I would not myself have benefited from it. So clearly now that I would benefit from it, I'm uh, just as enthusiastic uh, about it. It is entirely wrong uh, that a party uh, that I wouldn't have voted for ever, uh, UKIP, uh, can get millions of votes uh, but no MPs. And a party that uh, gets uh, um, 30% or less of the popular vote in the country could end up with a parliamentary majority, depending on how the chips fall. Uh, So I have uh, an old fashioned view, uh, which is that the parliament should directly reflect the proportion of votes cast in the country. That would place me. on the Israeli side of the proportional representation system. But there are other systems. Other systems are available. There's the one in Scotland, the additional member system. There's the Dehant system by which our delegation to the European Parliament uh, is elected. But I prefer pure proportional representation. If you get 10% of the votes in the country, you should get precisely 10% of the seats In the Parliament, Adam, over to you.
6: Yeah, I I agree. I believe in proportional representation. There's nothing sacred about the way in which MPs are elected, which a lot of people don't get. It changed in a bigly way, to quote Trump, in 1832, again in 1867, again in the 1880s, then 1918, and even as recently as the Attlee government, when the loss of the multi-member MP constituencies were abolished. It's constantly evolving. Uh, Can I just say I quite like the way that the EU Parliament gets elected with their proportional representation. You like how the Israeli parliament gets elected. So I think I'm going to have to ring one of the tabloids because for the first time in history, I'm agreeing with something to do with the European Union and you're agreeing with something to do with Israel. <laughs> but so oh, we're generally in agreement though on that. But getting to the other point, um, I'm, I'm absolutely in favor of more democracy, more, more referenda and more free speech. I can't stress that enough. But I think that uh, our friend calling in might be a bit overly optimistic. In a traditional totalitarian or oligarchic state, free speech is silenced the old-fashioned way, under a jackboot, in the gulag. What we have here is people are generally allowed to talk and talk on Facebook and Twitter and the rest of it. Until but people start li- listening to them. Indeed. And they won't let them get near the elites. And there is a change in the air. The winds of change are blowing. But the old liberal elite aren't gone yet. So I think we need to remember that while Twitter and Facebook are a good way to get voices heard, it's still a digital make-believe world. If that doesn't translate into the ballot box and into the wider uh, parliament of ideas and society, then it's more of a sideshow than anything else. Last word quickly to you Heath. Uh, I think if we have more of the
7: proportional representation, we will lose these hyper, hyperbolic campaigns that target one or two or ten marginal constituencies that swing elections.
1: Yeah, yeah, quite so. And that is a very negative uh, thing. Thanks for that call uh, from Florida, from I Infer, an Englishman, about the UK's uh, voting system, which tells you something about this mother of all talk shows. Clever people uh, are listening to us all over the world. It really is a global university, and I'm grateful to everyone that called in everyone that uh, uh, sent in tweets and other messages, I'm sorry if we didn't get to uh, yours, Uh, but the good news is uh, we'll be back here God willing at the same time, same place next week. Uh, A number of people are asking why can't we do more uh, of these uh, shows, we're very grateful to RT and to Sputnik for the show that we have, it's a big operation. Uh, It's quite an expensive uh, operation much more big and much more expensive than the old inferior local radio Versions of the show, so I wouldn't dream of asking them uh, to do it all again Midway uh, through the week for example, but there are breaking news stories often uh, that I uh, Would like to comment on and I do a short four-minute video for RT every Monday which comes out uh, on a Tuesday. I also do uh, a weekly column for RT.com which I write on a Tuesday and which is published uh, on uh, a Wednesday. Uh, So there are plenty of opportunities on Facebook, on Twitter uh, to keep abreast of what I'm saying, what I'm thinking and you can follow both Adam and me on Twitter and uh, in my case on Facebook and on uh, Instagram even, Snapchat even. So it's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you. My thanks to all my friends through the glass, uh, busy uh, like a beehive it is, (laughs) uh, with uh, very clever young people doing their very best to bring you what I think is the best show on radio.
4: It's must-see radio. Spread the word, won't you, about it?